So on Monday afternoon, I got an email in my inbox, and the email, you know, I don't do that. Um, I got an email in my inbox, and the email was, didn't have any subject in the subject line. It was a one-sentence email from one of our worship leaders, actually Alicia Shepard over there. And the email simply said, what will be the theme for this meeting? Now, this isn't an unusual email that I get. I typically get an email either sometimes Sunday night, Monday, or Tuesday, because the worship leaders want to make sure that the worship songs that we sing are in concert with what God is speaking through the Word. So we really want to make sure all the major elements of our service are working in concert and we're on the same stage. So I typically get these emails that ask me what the theme will be for their meeting email. And I shut up back a quick response, and I'll just read that response. Hey, Alicia, the theme will be, not fully titled yet, but it will be centered around the idea that hope, which comes through the birth of Jesus, came also with pain and unfortunate circumstances. Things like Joseph's dilemma about the circumstances of his virgin wife's being pregnant, the humble circumstances of the Savior's birth, and all the children who had to die as a result of the king's anger as he tried to kill the enemy. The point is, when we look at the story for what, it's really, for what it really is, we see that God's ways are often less than easy and convenient. The goal of this message is to help us see that God's plan is mingled with pain sometimes, and that that pain often gives way to the greatness and fulfillment of God's plan. Still fuzzy on the details, but this is going to uh, This is an email that I sent out on Monday. And you can imagine my surprise when on Friday, I hear my phone going off with these series of serial texts. You know, more than one text message is coming in at one time. And as I looked at my phone, it was text messages from my friend, Lotale, before. Uh, it was a friend of mine from college that lives in the area. He comes here from time to time. And Lo uh, was asking questions like, man, what's the meaning of this? Why would somebody do this? Why would somebody go into school and do this. Of course, I, had, I hadn't heard the news yet, so I had no idea what he was talking about. So I just Googled a couple of keywords from his text message. And to my surprise, I learned the start of the news of what happened. And as big stories happen like this, being the person who's formerly worked in the news business, I know that the major networks will break in and give this continuing coverage. So I go to the television and there it is. The glory, um, details as they were unfolding on Friday morning and afternoon. The 20-year-old shooter went, um, left his Connecticut home after killing his mother, drove five miles to New Connecticut, forced his way into a school, and got down 26 people. And as I said at my desk yesterday, um, I read the full report, what happened. I was just moved to uncontrollable things. Twelve girls, eight boys, all first graders, sixteen of them were six years old, four of them were seven years old, not to mention the six otherwise. So only one survived on this medicine. The medical examiner who has over 30 years of experience said this was a horrific thing that he ever witnessed in his 30 years of being a medical examiner. He tells that there's 
each person had two to the left. First graders. As we watched as the, as Twitter and Facebook lit up with prayers and hateful comments and all sorts of confusion and questions, there's undoubtedly people, particularly all over the country, perhaps all over the nation, went to where their children are to hug them and to check on their well-being. President of the United States ordered that all flags be Flown to half mass, and about 2.15 on Friday afternoon, the president addressed the nation in um, a very sober and somber address, pausing, hold back the tears, and using his fingers to wipe away the tears. He wasn't focused on being presidential, he was focused on the fact that many, many people have lost love in their day. He was speaking as a father, and not merely as a president, and Stories and details that could go on and on and on. People all over the world have been touched by this tragedy. And it is with great sadness and with a heavy heart that I continue our Christmas sermon series that we've simply been calling Very purposeful and not trying to search for a way to, to lighten the mood or to try to find a silver lining in all of this because the, the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us there's a time and a place for everything. Time for joy and dancing, but he also told that there's a time. There's a time for mourning. And at this time, we join with our brothers and sisters all across the nation and perhaps all across the world. And we mourn. We're sad. And we grieve for the senseless loss of life at the hands of the trouble of the young. But yet and still we find ourselves in the season of that, what we are supposed to be celebrating. Celebrating. And thanking God for Christ's first coming, preparing for uh, his second coming, and celebrating Christ's presence among us with his precious Holy Spirit today. This season is not about presence, it's not about food, it's not about this and that. We've been saying that it's a season that centers around hope. But the question that we ask today is what the hope in this story? What is the silver lining? In this great trial, how do we make sense of the senseless kingdoms? How do we make sense of this master? What can the Christmas story, the narrative of Jesus Christ and his birth, what can the pages of the canon of scripture teach us and tell us? What can it give us to ease the pain of this great tragedy? And not just this great tragedy, but the tragedies that happen that go unspoken and go unreported each and every day of our lives. What do we find in the pages of the story? What do we find in the pages of the modern king of scripture to help us deal with this tragedy? And I'm just going to offer this kind of point that I come to you today for all the answers. Burning questions that you might have for me or burning questions that you might have for the Lord may very well go unanswered today. And I'm very sorry about that. But I've simply titled this message this morning, When Pain is a Part of the Story. When Pain is a Part of the Story. I am struck by death and great tragedy, particularly as it pertains to loss of life, either through at the hands of somebody else, or through illness or sickness, in a way that I wasn't several years ago. In fact, several years ago, I found myself a bit insecure as a pastor because 
For the most part, I just had to walk through the gauntlet of life. Started pastoring at the age of, I believe I was 27. And I was very insecure about the fact that I just hadn't gone through much significant pain loss. I had this and that happened, but there was a pretty significant pain loss in my life, and I was rather insecure about that. Several years ago, my father went to be with the Lord, and suddenly I began to empathize with people in a way that I never had the opportunity to do so. Suddenly, the sting of death cut deeper for me than it had ever done so before. So much so that when we experience pain and death in our own community here, and even when I observe through the newspaper, through television, a person experiencing death, I see the grief on their face, and I know the weight that they have to go through, and I know the funeral that they have to go through, and I know the pain that they have to walk through, I'm just a little more in touch with the reality of that pain and that suffering. Feel like I have a little more street credit as a pastor, as a Christian leader. And I think when we look at the pages of the Christmas story, when we look at the whole scripture, I think we'll find that Jesus is a credible source of comfort. Because he's walked through the pain, he's walked through the struggle, his life walked with pain and suffering and loss. And we'll just look at a snapshot of that in the Christmas story of all places this morning. We'll look at Matthew chapter 2. We have Bibles with you. We have Bibles on the edges of the rows. We'll also be projecting it on the screens. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, there are Bibles on the edge of these rows. I let me take those with you. But I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 2. I'm just going to read a short portion of the Christmas story, pull a few things out, and just give us a helpful way of how to process some of these things today. Before we do that, let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much. Thank you for this church. Thank you, more importantly, Lord, for the safety of the people who came here today. Lord, we woke up this morning. We had the activity of our men's school. We had love our children, and we are so grateful for that. But this morning, we stand uh, shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, with our brothers and sisters all over this nation as we mourn the loss of life of those children that we care for those adults. And we even pray, Lord, for the family Lord, I pray that your peace and your comfort would guide them. I pray, Lord, that you would offer them peace. I pray that they would run to you and you would find safety and comfort and peace and your warmth and comfort among us. Lord, I stand with pastors and preachers all across the nation and perhaps all over the world as they try to make sense of this uh, tragedy. And I pray, Lord, that your peace would be theirs. I pray that you would give them wisdom and the words to speak. I pray that this Sunday would highlight you and your goodness and your greatness and your great comfort. But would you empower on these words that you're giving me to speak? I ask that these things would make sense in the ears of the wisdom that would provide comfort and peace at a time of tragedy and loss. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 2. We pick up a portion of the Christmas story. And so far what's happened is Elizabeth and Mary's cousin has given birth to uh, John, John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, and um, Mary has become pregnant, you know, the angel of the Lord has spoken to her, she's given birth to this son, and we pick up the story, uh, a Christmas story, after the birth of Jesus. Matthew chapter 2, I'll start at verse 1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? 
We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, Judea, they said. For this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, uh, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem and went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and bread. When it's time to leave, they returned to, to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for a child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken to the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and hungry, based on the wise men born of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal actions fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in rain, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are all dead. But a sobering story we read, especially in light of the tragedy. Let me just unpack this for a second. Jesus was born during the reign of Herod, and we probably get a sense that Herod wasn't a real good guy. He wasn't a nice guy. He was an evil king. He was insecure and selfish, jealous. And it was just some sort of a bad time for this all these events to be happening. We also learned that there are wise men that are arriving from Jerusalem. They saw the stars that rose, and they came to worship the Lord. So trying to figure out where this new Savior King would be, naturally they go to uh, they go and say, they go to where the king is. They say, hey, does anybody have any news about the birth of this king? So when Herod and the townspeople and the writers and the scribes and the teachers of religious law, they hear this, they're, they're naturally concerned. I mean, this is sort of the beginning of their uh, disdain for Jesus, their attack on him, their desire to snuff this out. So word gets to the king, and of course he's insecure about the situation, so he calls a private meeting with the wise men. And he says, listen, when you guys find this wife, when you guys find this savior, listen, come and let me know, because I want to go and worship this king too. I'm as excited about, it, about this as you are. Go and worship him. Come back to me. Tell me about his whereabouts so I can go and worship him too. Well, obviously we know that the king had other intentions. So the wise men, they don't know any better, so they go and they worship the king. They bring gifts to the Lord. But the Lord speaks to these wise men and says, listen, don't go back to Herod. This guy has bad intentions. He's not going to end well. Go a different route home. The Lord also speaks to Joseph and says, listen, take your kids, get them, take your child, get them out of here. Because Herod has bad 
intentions. Well, when the king finds out about this, he's furious. Why? Because he had bad intentions. And when he finds out about this, he, he tries in a last-ditch effort to kill the Messiah. And what does he do? He does this blanket thing. He does the unthinkable. He orders his soldiers to kill all of the children, all of the boys who are two years old and younger. What is the slaughter of all of these children? Now, I have to tell you something. I've read this story over and over and over. I've heard dozens, if not more, messages on this passage. And I can't tell you, for the life of me, how I've overlooked these boys and girls over and over again. It's not that I haven't heard these things. It's just somehow I know how the story ends. I know Herod's kind of stumbling, trying to find Jesus to kill him. I know the story ends well, so somehow these, these details don't quite have the punch that they should have. But I tell you, when I read this story, through eyes and tears, in the wake of a, uh, such a tragic loss of life, involving innocent children, defenseless children, suddenly suddenly they, they pop up. Suddenly they mean a whole lot more. And as I unpack this today, again, I don't want to exposit this passage today. That's not my goal. My goal is to show you that in the Christmas story, with the sweet baby Jesus, with all the nice pictures that we see and all the warm fuzzies that we feel when we read this story, we see that there's immense pain, immense suffering, immense loss in the Christmas story of all things. We see the wise men. Noble men, great men, they just want to come and worship. And they innocently walk into a situation where now they're on the king's hot list. And this king is an angry king. He thinks nothing of killing people and wiping people out for his own purposes. And here these guys have just come to worship the king. And now they're in the thick of this story. Now they're on the king's hit list. Now they have to go all the way a different route home because now they're in the mix of
to take their sins away. To take their sins away. But again, I've read these details over and over and over. And it's only this week that I said, let me just try to really imagine what the depths of the situation would be. Let me imagine that I got an opportunity. And somebody informed me that some powerful person means I know was trying to get my Imagine the fear and the pain and the anxiety and the ways that I would scramble to secure my home. Perhaps securing something to, you know, make my house more safe. Perhaps weapons on Maybe we just protect something. I'm, I'm trying to protect my child. And even though I know that God is with me, this is a circumstance now that I hadn't budgeted for. I didn't sign up for this. I didn't ask for this. Inconvenient. Pain. Impending death. This is all in the Christmas story. This is the Christmas story. And so far, we've only spoken about people who have sort of been key players in this story. As we trek through this story, we arrive at a group of people who are just really, literally, innocent bystanders. And those are the families and the parents of the children who were slain, who were killed. In Herod's attempt to snuff out the life of the infant Jesus. This guy is so worked up about this. He's so insecure about his throne. He's so at odds with this that he says, listen, I don't care. Human life means nothing to this children. And we're, I mean, we need not only stop at the fact that life was lost. This is first, uh, first century Palestine. This is you know, male offspring. That was the future of your family. The implications reached into your well-being, how you would be cared for after, you know, after you reached those golden years. Lives walked just like that. Listen, we're not reading some horror story. We're reading the Christmas story. This is the beginning of Jesus' life, and sadly, pain and loss and trouble and betrayal and all manners of, uh, of, of wicked things will befall the Savior for his whole whole entire life. We're talking about Jesus. We're talking about Jesus. Guess what? We're followers of him. We've signed up for this. And guess what? In this life, we will experience pain. In this life, we'll experience pain because right in the pages of the Christmas story, we see so much tragedy. We see so much love. We see so much pain. We see so much death. And you say today, preacher, we're an Advent series, right? This is Christmas. We're talking about hope. You ask the question, where is the hope? In that. Where's the hope in this story? We're talking about people being on a hit list, we're talking about people having to shuffle around to, 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 to keep their children from being killed, we're talking about dozens and hundreds of children being killed just because the king said so. Where's the hope in that? Where's the hope in that? The hope in that is that we've overlooked and downplayed the pain of the story. And because we've done so, we haven't budgeted for it. Remember to spend some money on something that you didn't know before. Especially when things are tight. When you're already running close to the red, right? You're barely in the black. You ever had something come up that you hadn't budgeted before? I think often as Christians, because the first person who's explaining the gospel to us, either they, you know, left out the part about all the pain and suffering, right? And the loss and the cross of Christ that people have to pick up. You want to be inside of Jesus Christ. 
Or they only told you about an exaggerated and inflated sense of prosperity and blessing. Because everybody gets a Cadillac once you're a Christian. I mean, that's in the Bible somewhere. You're going to get a Cadillac. You're going to get a house on the hill. You're going to get that job you want. Your ship is about to come in. You listen to something. And somewhere as they were explaining the gospel, they forgot to tell you that Jesus himself was a man of much sorrow, a man who had gone through much in his life. They forgot to tell you that pain has always been part of the Savior's story. They forgot to tell you that pain has always been a part of the Savior's story. And you see that even in the Savior's story from the very outset, he and those around him, those connected to him, have been dealing with pain, discomfort, inconvenience, and You say, again, preacher, where's the hope in that? I hope you get to the answer to that question. You get into it. Where's the hope in that? Here's the hope. Jesus is a qualified counselor. He's a qualified counselor. He's a qualified counselor. You know, when you, when you do what I do for a living, you don't, you certainly don't, as a, as a human, you don't want pain and trouble to darken your door. But I tell you, um, one of the things that I'm relieved, one of the one of the silver linings in some of the dark clouds that have passed over my life as I've gone through significant trials in my marriage, as I've experienced pain and losses, I've had to do with that things, as I've experienced betrayal and all these other things in my life, family issues, what it does is it makes me Counselor to those who darken my door in that Those who are dealing with the sting of loss of a loved one, those who are facing a reduction in income and having to steal back, and those who are dealing with this and that. You know, the more I live my life and the more pain that I experience, the more credible I am as a counselor, the more experience I have, right? The more I can throw my arms around you and say, listen, I've been there. I know what you're feeling right and still as a young pastor, there's a great many scenarios and circumstances that I just really don't have any grit from. And even as I stand to preach on certain subjects, I'm preaching solely from the counsel of others. I'm preaching solely from what the Bible says on the subject. I have no experience of my own. But those instances where I have experience, I'm grateful for them because it makes me credible as a counselor. It makes me qualified as a counselor. And this is what we have in the person of Jesus. Because we can't say to Jesus, you don't know that. Right. You can't say, Jesus, listen, those fine words that you have, they sound good on paper, but you don't know what it's like to deal with pain and loss. God, you don't know what it's like to lose a child. And the Lord says, But you don't know what it's like to be betrayed by people who, who, who are close to you, people who you, you know, love so much and trusted so much that you, you, you leave your children with them. You don't know what it's like to be betrayed, to be talked about, and to be deserted at your greatest time. And you don't know what that's like. And Jesus says, um, I do. I do. I do. Great, greatest counselors, the best counselors, the greatest comforters are those who themselves have gone to great tragedy in And sometimes those folks can sit with you and they don't have to say a word to you just knowing that they've been there, that they've walked those thorny roads. Let's you know that this purpose connection here. We have something here. We don't need to speak. We don't need to talk. You don't need to give me advice. Just something. You ever been with somebody who's been where you are? This is something that 
There's just a connection there. There's a bond there. But Jesus is that person. And no more words detail this other than the words of the prophet Isaiah. Long before Jesus comes on the earth, Isaiah 53, verse 3, he was despised and rejected. This is Isaiah talking about Jesus. A man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief, we turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. What is Isaiah saying? He's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with the deepest grief. He turned our backs on him. From the very day he was born, he was dealing with folks trying to, trying to take him out. Issues of grief and loss. Where's the hope in this story, preacher? Jesus is a qualified counselor. He comforts those who are the ones because he's been there. Where else is there hope in this story? We look toward the end of the story. Listen, we get to cheat. Okay? We get to read the answers in the back of the book. We get to see how this story ends. I was so delighted when I got to college, uh, when I got to high school. And in the back, the answers are two problems. The answers are problems. That just must be a teacher's edition. <laughs> oftentimes, the teachers would you know, assign the odd problems. So you get, you know, okay, and they want you to show your work. Um, you know, that was easy. You just find somebody who did it. You know, that's the only thing. That's the only thing. <laughs> but the point is, we get to flip to the back of the book and we get to see that we win in the end. Amen. That's we right. Win in the end. Amen. Let me let you in on something. You know, this, this is a major difference between us and God. The major difference between us and God is that we, uh, we view our life between the bookends of our birth and our earthly death. Okay? When God looks at life, He not only sees. He not only sees a big picture with all these different timelines of every single person on the earth, past, present, and future, the Lord views this world in the light of eternity. In the light of eternity. And let me tell you, that's a very different perspective. Okay? When Jesus came, the scriptures tell us that Jesus took the sting of death, hell, and the grave, right? So that sounds very poetic, but death, night, right? What does that really mean? We can stop fearing death, which is so human, it's so base, right? And we can say, well, this life spans far beyond our earthly death, which all of us would like to do today. That's right. So Jesus knows the end of the story. And he not only knows the end of the story, he's clued us in on the end of the story. So in the end, though you may suffer now, though you devastating pain and loss on this side of heaven, this side of death, listen, we win in the end. Now, that makes it easier to pass through these valleys. It makes it easier to deal with suffering, pain, and loss. But still, you realize we're human. It still stings. It still hurts. It's still unfortunate. It's still inconvenient. Yet, we know that at the end of this thing, Jesus wins. Amen. At the end of this thing, hope wins. At the end of this thing, love wins. It doesn't take the pain away, but it makes it more bearable. We talk often about the kingdom of God. 
when Jesus came into this earth, he began to usher in the kingdom of God. It comes with it, healing, hope, blessing, all the beauty and value of the kingdom of God. Yet, we live in a sinful, fallen world. So the kingdom has been inaugurated, has been has begun, but it's not fully here yet. It'll only be fully realized when Jesus comes back and sets everything right again. So in the meantime, we live in the tension of the already. Jesus has come and inaugurated the kingdom, and they're not yet. We still experience pain, death, and loss. We stand, we live, we breathe, we relate in the tension of the already and the not yet. The already and the not yet. You say, where's the hope in that? The not yet. Yet means it's coming. Amen. Yet means that if we hold on and if we don't faint and if we don't quit and if we don't lose heart, do something greater will be a part of the already, not yet, we live hope because it's not yet it's coming. It's not yet. It's coming. That's what the hope is. That's what the hope is. But let me tell you something. Since we live in the tension of the already and not yet, since we still deal with pain, loss, injury, tragedy, betrayal, the list goes on and on. We've got to figure out a way to process that. We've got to figure out a way to cope with the reality of pain and loss. Whether it's happening to us, specifically, or it's happening in the world around us. If we don't want to lose our mind over this stuff, we've got to find a way to process it. And I want to talk real quickly about three things to consider when pain is part of the story. Or should I say, three things to consider because pain is an immovable part of the story. Ways to process this world, ways to look uh, at pain and suffering and loss through heavens and through lenses of eternity. The first thing I want to say, first tool that I'm going to give you to help process this is that some pain, some loss, some death, some tragedy is planned by God. Say with me. Some pain, some suffering, some loss, death even, is sometimes the plan of God. Sometimes pain is not just part of the story. It is part of the plan. And this is one of the most difficult things for humans when we try to in interact with an infinite sovereign God to process. And this very reality is what keeps a lot of people from committing their lives to Jesus, committing their lives to Christ, because pain, according to Scripture, according to the life of Jesus, is often part of in other words, God sometimes makes you deal with some unfortunate, tragic, unthinkable circumstances and situations on this end so that a greater good can be produced to yourself or to others on the other side. Okay? Now we are okay with that when the greater good of it happens. Or um, when the beneficiaries of these things. But all this trouble us. And we're the person in front of them who have to deal sacrificially with the consequences, with the circumstances, with the pain, the struggle, the death, all of them. We don't want to do that. When these tragedies happen, when things happen in our lives, some of you have even been able to say, you know, that was not good. The pain that's out there, all that hurt like that, that was, that was, that was God. He was in the midst of that. He was in the midst of that. I think the greatest story in scripture that illustrates 
One of the greatest stories that illustrates this is the story of Joseph as told in Genesis chapter 37 through 50. It's a fascinating story. I recommend that you all read it, and someday I'll do a, uh, an ongoing series on the whole life of Joseph. It's a fascinating story. Plenty, plenty to pull out of there. But the short story is this, that Joseph, um, the youngest son of his father Jacob, was the favorite son of his father Jacob. Jacob had a lot of sons. But Joseph is the favorite. Joseph gets this coat. I mean, he's heard stories about this coat, which just sort of rubbed it in the noses of his brothers. And Joseph is having these dreams about how he's going to reign and how he's going to be powerful and important. He shares this with his fathers and brothers, and it just incites this raging. So they didn't want to kill this guy. They want to get rid of him. But instead of killing them, they sort of throw them in this pit, and then they sell them to some folks who are heading away as a slave. So Joseph is just sort of carted to a faraway place where he's a slave, he's in this foreign land. It's just a tragic story. He's in prison, but the story sort of ebbs and flows. He gets out, you know, he, he gains favor, he's lied on, and he goes back into prison, and all these sorts of things happen. The tragic story happens to this guy, Joseph. So fast forward, you know, the king has a dream, and Joseph is gifted in interpreting dreams, and basically the king's dream is basically like, hey, listen, there's going to be a major sort of uh, increase in crops, you're going to have all these years of prosperity and harvest, but also coming behind that are years of famine. So the Lord is saying, you better store up some of this stuff, so that when famine ends, you, your people won't die, and people will come all around, and you will save the land, you know, God's people, because you've had this ingenious plan of storing all this stuff. Right? So, King is like, dude, that was so insightful. Talk about power of vengeance, right? King says, look, you be in charge of this. I'm going to give you all this control over this stuff. So fast forward the story. Guess who comes back? Guess who's standing in the soup line when the, when the family happens? Joseph's brothers. And so much time has passed that they don't even recognize the guy that Joseph he recognizes. And Joseph can't take it anymore. And in Genesis 45, verses 1 through 8, Joseph gives this big reveal, and this is what he says. Joseph could stand it no longer. There were many people in the room, and he said to his attendants, out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. Then he broke down and wept. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians could hear him, and the word of it quickly carried to the Pharaoh's palace. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers, and is my father, is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer, and he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset, and don't be angry with yourself for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years, and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace, and the governor of all of Egypt. Never get tired of him. Joseph says, listen, you guys are going to take me out. You sold me up the river. You didn't care what happened to me. My life has been very difficult. All this pain, all this suffering, all this loss, how do I account for this? And at the end of this whole thing, he says, listen, God did this to me. Don't be sad. Don't be sorry. Don't take credit for this ingenious turn of events. God did this to me. God did this to me. 
God did this to me. Some circumstances and situations in my own life that were absolutely tragic that in, in, the, in the moment of the front of the attack, I couldn't see any way that God could have any in it. And as things progressed and as things passed, God did that. He did that. Now, I'm not saying that all tragic events. I'm not even saying most of them. But a good number of them were the work of God. Why? Because he sees in the light of eternity. And when he looks at his believers, he sees pain. He sees even, you know, earthly death. But that's not final for him. We get scared about that. We think about, oh, what would have been. We think about the pain that we feel. But God says, listen, I got this. You don't love me, all right? I got whole rest of time to love on you. I got whole rest of the ages to be God to you and be in a relationship with you. So when there's pain and suffering, it's not that God is indifferent to us. But he just doesn't see things the way we see it. And think of a million people, generations and generations, who benefited from Joseph being a slave in Egypt, being in that prison where the king needed the dream interpreted. This is God's plan. This is God's plan. And if you want a more rock-solid uh, story of pain being for greater good, we need only look at our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Isaiah says in the same uh, chapter that we read earlier, but it was the Lord's good plan to crush him. It was in Jesus. It was his father's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, we will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. Present pain for future greater good. Sometimes it's part of the plan. I can stay up all day, but I'm more. The second thing is that sometimes pain is a part of the story because of the choices of mankind. The choices of mankind. Now, if you can internalize this reality, it will free you up in major, major ways. Many of the questions that we have about suffering, pain, and loss can be answered by this reality, the choices of mankind. In fact, the choice that God gives us to choose good or evil is the best thing that could ever happen to us and yet the worst thing that The best thing that can happen to us and the worst thing that happens to us. Because the gift of salvation that Jesus offers us only works if we choose it. It only works if we choose it. It only works if we choose it. I guess it would be nice if the Lord programmed us all, you know, love God, we love you, Lord. That'd be nice. I mean, there'd be no pain in the world. Program. Brings commandment. Love God, love people, those are right there, because we're like, well, we can do that. But then we would make choice and means. So Lord says, as I said before, we good in
Don't do that. Death and life, they're mutually exclusive. They don't mix. There's no turning back. Oh, don't do that. We're living in pain and suffering in our world. What, what, what's the plan? What's the plan? Bitch, I'm the plan. It's because of this. Because we have whole communities of people, whole cities, whole states, whole nations, whole world, with a vast majority of people choosing death. Vast majority of people are just giving in to our biggest problem, which is selfishness, immediate gratification. I'm not thinking about me. And what says, listen, if you want to inherit eternal life, love God, love people. Live with connection and oneness to the Creator and do right by the person who shares the space with you. That's what you need to do to inherit eternal life. But says, I'm not going to be gratification. I'm going to go have some fun. That eternal life stuff, that seems like that's off in the distance. The vast majority of people on this earth are living for themselves, which is the essence of what sin is. And Jesus tells us, Paul tells us that the fruit of sin is death. Now it would be nice if that death and the consequences of that sinfulness was only sort of quarantined to the person who did the actions. But that's not how this fallen, sinful, selfish world works. Oftentimes, what's spilling out into our society, what's spilling out into our schools, what's spilling out all over the place, is the fruit of sin. And it's death on top of death on top of death. And guess what? It's not getting any better. It's not getting any better. So weeks like this that I am glad my hope is in Jesus. I hope it in legislation and gun control and birth control. My hope is not in any of that. My hope is in Jesus. And the mess more now than ever. I don't cling to the Savior like never before. It's not coming in. The choices of man coming is the wrong for the wrong country. Choices of mankind is sent 20 year old country into a school pack here in the salt And let's back up a little bit. It's following the choices of mankind. We have rewind this young man's life. Another what might have transpired in his life. Perhaps bullying, perhaps something, perhaps abuse, perhaps something. The speculation can go on and on. But we know that many people have been, because they themselves have been in the sins of others, the choices of mankind. And if you want a real snapshot of this, look no further than Genesis chapter 3. The fall of mankind. That you and I are still paying the price for that today. You women, you can thank your labor pains. You can send Eve a nice thank you card for your labor pains. Right? Your doctor bills. So it says, listen, since you made this choice, it's going to be hard for you. And guess what you is? Mankind. It's going to be rough for you guys now. The choices are mankind. So some pain happens because it's got plan, God's plan. Some pain happens because of the choices of mankind. And finally, some stuff happens and we have to categorize it. We have to file it under the category of simply the mystery. The mystery. Some things you'll be able to pinpoint and say, listen, God was in there. Some things you'll pinpoint and say, listen, that was just because this guy's naked. 
You made a bad choice. There's a great many things, scenarios, circumstances, tragedies, and pains that we will have to file in the mystery category that we won't get an explanation for, that we won't get any insight into until we see the state. I got a short list of things that I want to ask the state. Not a very wide question, but that's just one. Unconditional love, 
unconditional praise and worship, unconditional submission. As you go through all that stuff, as you go to the end of that, worship team, what's the big picture today? The big picture is that pain will always be your part of the story. The big picture is that Jesus, because of the pain and suffering loss, is a qualified counselor. Hope is that we know how the story ends. Jesus says in John chapter 16, verse 33, I told you all this so you may have peace in me. Here on earth you may have many trials and sorrow, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Jesus said, I'm telling you what's wrong. You have experienced pain, you have experienced trauma and trauma, but take heart. Don't quit, don't give up, don't walk away. Because I have overcome the world. I overcome the world. Now let me tell you something today. If you have to understand every tragedy that happens in your life and the world around you before you commit your life to Jesus, it will never happen. You will struggle your whole Christian life. I'll say once more as I close, if you have to understand, if it has to make sense to you, if God has to give you an explanation for the pain, suffering, loss, and tragedy that we experience in this world, you will have a rough and incomplete go at it as a follower of Jesus. And what the Lord asks us to do is to listen. I've been to the Lord. I've experienced what you need to do. I'm in touch with your pain. I'm the great comforter. Just trust me. And when it hurts, lean on me. And when you're weak, lean on me. When you don't understand, lean on me. Jesus, I thank you for your word. And as empty as some of these um, explanations and insights might be in the wake of the tragedies and in the wake of some of the pain that we've experienced in our own life, but we know that your words are true. And heaven and earth will pass away before a single word of false truth. And Lord, we just appeal to your goodness. We appeal to your credibility, we appeal to your mercy in times like this. And we ask, Lord, that your kingdom will come and come quickly. But for those of us who are here, who are experiencing pain, who are confused by the happenings of life, Lord, I pray that you would bring comfort, that you would bring clarity. And Lord, for those uh, situations that don't have an answer, I pray, Lord, that we will rest in the fact that some things are a mystery and that you gather in you got things Lord, as we worship you today, we will just highlight your goodness. We'll highlight that in every season of life, you are good no matter what happens. That you are there for us, and we worship you, Lord. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us will be able to just be free to worship you. Cast our tears on you, Lord. We will weep, we'll weep, Lord. We need to, to sob, we'll sob. We need to just cry out to you, Lord. This is a safe place to be. Would you lead us here? Would your spirit just rest and fill this place as we wish you? And the great comforter, just come and comfort you. Lord, we ask for all these things in Jesus' name.